that ambiguity is going to be with us for a little while in terms of like what this is really going to look like, because we're waiting to see what cases prosecutors are willing to bring. Abby, that you brought up not to put any words in your mouth, like the fundamentally conservative nature of medicine as like an mm-hmm. institution. Oh, and- yeah. You can put those words in my mouth. That's <laughs> If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, you can share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today we have quite the packed episode for you. Artie, Phil, and I are joined by three returning friends of the panel today to discuss the United States Supreme Court ruling in the Dobbs versus Jackson case, that overturned the federal right to an abortion established a half century ago in the case Roe versus Wade. This decision was anticipated to work out this way, and over the last year we have covered Dobbs v. Jackson from many angles, and now that the decision has been made final and this codified right is, you know, quote-unquote, being kicked back to the states, we've asked the guests who have helped us cover this along the way back on the show to talk about what happens now that Roe is dead. So first, we have Abby Cardis. Abby is a perinatal epidemiologist who has studied the way that health capitalism intersects with pregnancy in the United States, resulting in disastrous health outcomes. Abby is also currently a postdoctoral research associate at Brown University School of Public Health as part of the People, Place, and Health Collective. Abby, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. Next, we have Charlotte Shane. Charlotte is a writer, author of the books Prostitutes, Laundry, and N.B., and co-founder of Tiger Bee Press. Charlotte has been involved for a number of years as a volunteer for abortion funds and wrote a great essay about it in New York Review in May called Can You Describe This? Charlotte, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. So glad to have you. And finally, last but not least, we have Melissa Jira Grant. Melissa is a staff writer at The New Republic who has been covering reproductive rights for a long time, including the recent piece called The Fight for Abortion Rights Must Break the Law to Win. Melissa is the author of the book Playing the Whore, The Work of Sex Work, and the forthcoming book A Woman is Against the Law. Melissa, welcome back. Guys, thanks for having us all here. This is ridiculous, actually. <laughs> We're going to do this. It's, it's awesome to have all three of you on at once, to be honest. This yeah. is a dream. <laughs> So as I said at the top, the Supreme Court has issued its decision in the Dobbs v. Jackson case overturning the right to an abortion. To quote from Justice Samuel Alito's 79-page majority opinion, which was issued Friday morning on June 24th, 2022, quote, The Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. Ah, uh, yes. The people. <laughs> The people, of course. Now, on May 2nd, 2022, Politico published a leaked draft of this opinion, and this is the result of a decades-long legal fight that has sucked up a lot of energy and movement resources. This outcome was also anticipated by the people who have been doing organizing on the ground around reproductive justice for decades, who have been working outside of the legal system and sometimes outside of the law to help people get abortions. 
To say that it's anticipated is not to downplay the severity of this decision, nor is it to chastise people who are just now grasping what has been going on all along. But it is to say that this is an incredible lesson. We did not lose abortion under Trump or under George Bush or under Reagan. We lost it under Joe Biden. While the Democratic Party controlled both the House and the Senate, there is almost no clearer example of that limp, meandering liberalism that is nothing but a house of cards than the way this ruling instantly turned into a barrage of fundraising asks from the Democratic Party and an onslaught of takes from people saying, actually, this is going to be good and galvanize people in the midterms. So obviously, we're going to work against that framing today. And Melissa, as you wrote in your most recent piece for The New Republic, this is a moment for a lot of people to play catch up here. For many, the Democratic messaging is ringing untrue for the first time. This is a much bigger issue than electoral politics. This is about collective political will and how we decide to make society. And you said it very well in your piece. You said, quote, it's not just the overturning of Roe, I believe, that unsettles the whole idea of a rule of law that defines and protects rights is correctly feeling just as unstable. So to start us off, can you talk about what you mean by this and how you see the increasing instability of the concept of liberal rights growing through the realization, reaffirmation or confirmation that the courts will not save us and we're going to have to save ourselves? Oh, yeah, no big deal. (laughs) I'll do my best. Um, You know, I feel like there's kind of one kind of catching up that I talked about mostly in my piece, which is this sense of some people needing to catch up to the idea that Roe was always unstable. We could Mm. never take Roe for granted. And that the work that people were doing to actually ensure access to abortion in a meaningful way was not what elite liberal attorneys were doing in the highest court, that there was a lot more day-to-day work to ensure abortion access. And some of that work is going to continue, even if that work um, now may be happening outside the law. So that's like sort of one group of people who are who are catching up, right? People who maybe like weren't as plugged into abortion rights, um, but who are sort of getting a sense of this landscape now. Like, what's going to happen once we've lost this? Oh, there's people who've actually been like planning for this moment, um, and you know, I can sort of contribute to their efforts. I don't have to like freak out and create an abortion mm-hmm. underground railroad. Please don't call it that. Um, and all of these other ideas <laughs> that have been floating around social media over the weekend. Um, right, the so kind of white, white savior complexes. Yes, right. I'll come in and start. The new 501c3 that I will have two members, me and my friend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we do not need the safety pin club for abortion. It's just like not not what we need. If you guys remember right after yeah. Trump was elected. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it, there's, there's that. And then I think like within the movement for abortion rights and, and to some extent, the movement for reproductive justice, um, which are most of the time distinct, um, you know, there's this sense of like, well, fuck, like, you know, like if we're going to actually maintain access to abortion for people, um, our whole strategy is shifting now too. And I think some people have been anticipating that strategy, particularly in the RJ movement, who've been looking at this more holistically, um, you know, in terms of access to what you need to parent, to make that choice to parent, to have the means to parent, um, much bigger questions than just sort of like how many weeks is abortion going to be legal up to. Um, I what I want to see, what I hope to see is that some of the biggest reproductive rights organizations that mostly have had this legal approach, and this isn't to like call out anybody's strategy, but just to name those groups like the National Planned Parenthood, the Center for Reproductive Rights, um, you know, groups who have been really focused on this kind of legal strategy. I would like to see a reassessment and say, you know what, our resources right now, like 
we're moving from an era of sort of constitutional cases to criminal defense. And we're moving from an era of, you know, fighting for the right to access in elite courtrooms to fighting for the right to access um, on sidewalks and and sometimes um, criminal court in various counties across the United States. So that venue shift, I'm not confident actually that the mainstream of the reproductive rights movement has caught up to that either. So that's really what I'm watching right now. I mean, so this is this is the thing that I think you're hitting on really, you know, importantly, Melissa, which is that this decision, which this this ridiculous sort of lie, like return quote unquote, like returning it to the political process, which which obviously just means like oligarchy in, uh, you know, most of these states uh, where new bans are going to go into effect. It also kind of misses the fact. And, and I think this is sort of what you're speaking to, that there is not like one focal point of kind of of action. It's not as if just enacting the WHPA, the, this like federal quote unquote, like codification of Roe is itself would, would be sufficient uh, either. There's actually a lot of other ways in which that kind of strategy is, is sort of inadequate. And so I kind of wonder if you could talk about any of the things that you're seeing that actually do look like more, uh, you know, effective focal points. You talked a little bit about criminal defense, which which absolutely seems uh, important. But I, I'm also sort of curious is like in, in the states that have bans going into effect, they're all slight. The, the legal regimes are all sort of slightly different from one another. And so I'm just sort of curious, like what you're seeing as kind of movements or, or evolutions in the way that people are thinking about defending the ability to get abortions. Yeah, I mean, it's I feel like we're kind of still in this crisis mode right now, like even people who anticipated the crisis, like I don't necessarily know what they thought the morning that Roe was lost was going to look like until it showed up, not in reality, not until you're fielding all those calls from people who are scrambling Mm -hmm. to reschedule their appointments, if they can reschedule an appointment. I just saw an image um, that a reporter from Mother Jones posted from outside a clinic in the South where all abortion ended on Friday. Um, It was a state with a trigger ban, so that was immediate. And they had to like have a lawyer vet their resource sheet to hand people who were coming to the clinic, um, people that they weren't able to reach that lets them know, you know, what their other resources are. And the sheet doesn't even list particular clinics. It just sort of is a list of states um, that one could go to. And so that kind of I feel like we're still in a moment of triage, to be honestly, for providers and for people who are seeking abortion. And it's, you know, that, that even as much as like I kind of you know, had adjusted to this being the reality, seeing things like that. Um, I think the toll that that's going to have on providers and people doing all kinds of community support for people to access abortion um, are still kind of moving through that right now. I think that maybe it seems to me a little bit like they're kind of like two halves of the very dense web of obstacles that greet a lot of people who need an abortion. And one is predominantly legal and like pertains to the criminalization and the specificity of the criminalization, how it varies state by state. And obviously, like we know that lawmakers have no problem writing things into laws that aren't even possible to like when they tried like a what was it Louisiana or tried to pass the bill saying like you have to replant an ectopic pregnancy. Oh and, yeah, you know, like, they don't know what they're talking about. So you know, and and you have these laws that are clearly like not only is like the conception of them totally rotten and fascist and horrifying, but that they they don't they don't have any understanding even of what they're trying to legislate. Right. 
Yeah. Um, you know, so they might say something like, you know, any, any procedure to like interrupt a pregnancy after fertilization is illegal or something. Right. But it's like, well, how are you, I mean, we, you don't yet have chips in our uteruses. Like I know you're working on it, but like, <laughs> right. like who, who's determining these things. And of course, like the ambiguity of medical treatment has been leveraged very effectively by these laws because so many decisions, particularly very urgent decisions have to be made based on a doctor's judgment. And now of course, doctors have to say, do I want to go to jail for doing Mm -hmm. this or should I play it safe and not provide this care? And that is so almost like inconceivably awful (laughs) that, and I, and because I have like, you know, no legal background or anything like that, I'm kind of like, okay, that's not where I can be useful right now, maybe one day, but, um, but then there's also just like the material issue, which I feel much more familiar with. And if a friend of mine, you know, in Texas were to say, I I need an abortion, the steps I would tell the friend to take today are not any different than what I would have told them, you know, Friday morning at 8 a.m. The only difference being that I would say instead, like you might want to think about, you know, the digital security aspect, which I wouldn't have been like prioritizing as much before. Mm -hmm. But, you know, already (laughs) there were people needing abortions out of state, needing abortions that cost, you know, $20,000 sometimes because they're complicated and advanced in the pregnancy. We have people calling who are, you know, they currently don't have a home. They have unreliable access to cell phones, so both texting and like receiving and making calls. There are so many really like practical, concrete challenges and a lot of ways they can be addressed. And obviously the laws will make them much worse, but that's sort of where I fixate because I feel like maybe there are, um, it looks like more apparent solutions to me, more readily apparent solutions. You're like, there's there's a tremendous simplicity in somebody saying, I need $500 for an abortion. And you saying, here's $500 for your abortion. Right, absolutely. And I feel like what right now we're sort of working with is that these systems that are in place that uh, were sort of pre-existing and established in order to actually coordinate care what you're seeing is obviously that there's this like tremendous influx of people who um, are probably seeking these services. There might be like people trying to make donations right now, people trying to volunteer. There's always this kind of like concentration that tends to happen and a real feeling, I think, that people that that's like really I think sort of perpetuated in a lot of media framings that like now is the moment to like hear from the people with the solutions right or or donate your money in a certain way and like what is actually going on in the actual sites of coordinating care is that these like very bootstrapped organizations that are already running with not enough people to to support it and never enough money for what you need are actually now flooded with extra inquiries, having these extra expenses of having to, you know, be additionally concerned about like consulting lawyers or or beyond that, or just dealing with the influx of volunteers as well. And I feel like there's a kind of like weird sense of like solutionism or impatience where people are just sort of waiting for a magic bullet solution to appear. And if they could only find like the right org to donate to, like the sort of problem can be off their back because I think people feel like a great responsibility to take part in defending what I think for many liberals has sort of been like one of the last tenets of the Democratic Party's um, use value. This might be a moment 
that's almost a perverted gift in that sense. Right. Like now that like, I know I'm like, not even ready to say that. I can't believe I said that, but let me try to justify <laughs> my on the perverted, optimism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's no longer one legal story about abortion, right? Like Roe is no longer the focus and even things like passing federal legislation that would quote unquote codify Roe, even that wouldn't go far enough. Right. Well, there's many more pieces, mm-hmm. um, including things like the Hyde Amendment, um, which block people's ability to to use any kind of government paid for health care, whether that's you know insurance if you're in the military or Medicare um, for an abortion. So there's like even in the sort of existing legal framework that we had before Friday at 10 a.m., Roe wasn't enough. And and people have been pushing for years saying, like, we have to think about this in a much broader way. And so now, like, here we are, like, we have no choice but to think of this in a much broader way. And it's not, I think, going to be easy to to adjust to that ambiguity. Like Charlotte said, like, the law is incredibly ambiguous in the way that it's crafted and also in the way that it's enforced. Um, you know, one of the frustrations I had when I was writing a piece about abortion criminalization a couple of months ago was like, you can't just like go to Guttmacher's website and pull up a list of like, here's all the states where self-managed abortion is criminalized. Like you can do that, but that isn't mm-hmm. going to tell you about states that aren't on that list that don't have an explicit statute criminalizing self-managed abortion where people have been criminalized for self-managed abortion. So there's, I think that ambiguity is going to be with us for a little while in terms of like what this is really going to look like, because we're waiting to see what cases prosecutors are willing to bring. Mm -hmm. And so we won't really know a lot until we start to, to see that. And so that like, like, I think we're just going to be in this moment of ambiguity around the law for a minute, but it's a great moment for people who are looking for a way to like become more educated about this to connect with groups like If When How, connect with groups like National Advocates for Pregnant Women who have been tracking these cases going back to the passage of Roe or the adoption of Roe and and seeing that like actually people have already been criminalized for abortion and we can learn a lot from what that's looked like over the past nearly 50 years and, and see what that might mean for our situation right now. And like what's really different about this moment from then is that, you know, we're living under a much more um, intense regime of carceral control and surveillance. And, and that is something that I think we do actually have some skills for adapting to, whether that's been movements working against police violence and Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, there is, I think, more of an awareness of sort of like how to protect yourself from police surveillance when it comes to your, your digital life. And I think that that's like a really great place for people to sort of plug in and focus right now. There's a lot of fear around that. And I think tamping yeah. that down would be incredibly helpful for people who are feeling a little like, what the fuck do I do now? Melissa, it feels like when you're talking about the the power of like legal ambiguity, I feel like that really hits, hits the nail on the head, so to speak. Uh, because it, it seems like that ambiguity uh, is designed to like have an effect in society that it causes um, both providers and, you know, potential patients to engage in like their natural like level of like risk aversion. Like I don't want to be prosecuted. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to be sued. Um, I don't want, you know, fill in the blank. And the point is the blank, you know, you can draw any number of conclusions. I mean, I've seen conversations of providers saying like, what kind of training are we going to be able to provide, you know, or is going to be legal to provide uh, to like OPGYNs, um, you know, just like in the graduate medical education like process. And so I just sort of, you know, I, I think that point about 
finding ways of tamping down or harnessing or controlling that level of fear, which is absolutely part of the intention of the way that the laws are drafted right now in these states, seems to be like an important uh, piece of this, right? Yeah. And it's very powerful, right? I mean, like, I think we're all sort of raised with this idea that like, there is this thing called the law and, and the law means one thing and, and the law applies to everyone equally. And the law is, is static, um, except it's always being improved, moving towards the arc of justice, blah, 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 which like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> I hope that at least that uh, fantasy has been punctured by all of this. Like, no, you could lose anything. You could lose anything and everything. You know, the people who are saying like we could lose Griswold with um, the ability to have contraception for married couples and maybe even unmarried couples, which is a separate decision. Um, Obergefell with same-sex marriage. Um, any any kind of same-sex sex. All of these things that have been protected. Yes, Lawrence, thank you. Um, Hardwick, like there, there's there's anything right now, I think, is, is on the table. And that is going to be like its own kind of adjustment that's happening alongside like, well, what do I do day to day to protect me and the people that I care about? Um, it's a very unstable moment. And yeah, that's absolutely by design too. I think that I have only like complete empathy and, and sympathy with everyone who is afraid because it is such like a terrifying time. But I have also seen sort of this, um, you know, this response that comes out on social media that's like impossibly catastrophizing somehow even more than like the catastrophe we're in. So it's kind of this, like, I very much associate it with liberals, this tendency for when people are um, talking about, you know, ways of helping or ways of trying to protect yourself if you're working on obtaining an abortion. And that there's a group of people who are very eager, eager to say, oh, but that's going to be illegal or that is illegal too. And it's sort of like, okay, thanks. Like, <laughs> thank you for the newsflash. Like, it seems a little to me like some of these people really, um, they really want, they kind of want the law to be absolute because they want mm. the solution to be electoral politics. So they want to, you know, like excoriate people who didn't like Hillary or whatever. It's like, to me, it seems so like maladaptive, but also like psychologically intelligible because it's such, it's a time of such like exponentially intensifying responsibility to each other. And if you kind of let that in, it's, it's like, literally like life altering and like self altering. So I think it seems to me like a lot of people like want the comfort of just saying like, Oh, well, no, now we've lost everything and, and nothing is going to be possible to us because we, you know, didn't vote for enough Democrats. And the way we're going to solve that is every single elected official across this country has to be a Democrat. And I think it, it feels really important to me to just like, not that your listeners need it, but to give everyone permission to just like totally ignore those people. Like you don't have yes. to argue. With them. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but I, I do find, I do find there, it's almost like they're more willing to assert the power of the law than some of the like conservatives who are crowing about Roe dying, you know, like I actually don't see, uh, maybe it's just like my social media, like bubble curation, whatever. But I, you know, they're like um, the conservative glee is maybe like more overtly malicious, but that that these like liberals are doing the work for them by just popping in whenever anyone says something and saying like, well, that's illegal or that's going to be illegal or, you know, they're not going to let you cross the state lines or whatever. And I find that really disturbing. <laughs> I think it's like a very 
Okay, I'll I'll offer this like story, but we can cut it out if it doesn't work. So over the weekend, I went to like a coffee shop in my neighborhood. This is germane to what we're talking about, I promise. And I ran into this uh, a hipster coffee shop, and (laughs) I went to a coffee shop in my neighborhood, like any good liberal, you know what I mean, latte lib, whatever. Um, And I ran into you know these friends, neighbors of mine that happened to be there at the same time. You know, they're a gay couple, they're married, and there was you know one of one of these libs, I guess, like in the coffee shop who was totally just like opining to anyone and everyone that would listen about. Roe and how how bad this was going to be. You know, she said out loud she she didn't use the terminology that I'm going to use, but she said out loud, you know, you know, I wonder how many women got sexually assaulted last night, like all, all this stuff. And she turned to my my neighbor, you know, this this gay man and just said, you're next. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, oh, my God. my God. And like, you know, this is a you know, this is someone who who were on the same side with. And so. It was it was a little jarring to me because I think that there is this it's like a very liberal the way that like we have to talk about these like rights and whatever in the kind of liberal framework of admissibility like it's this very I feel like there's a sense that you have to talk about it in this kind of extremely emotive like extremely hyperbolic way you know like in order to make people care right like but but the whole idea there is that people care like about the suffering that results from this thing. And like from, from my, from my perspective, kind of the whole problem is that the class of people with, you know, like, you know, the, the class of people with like the full complement of political rights is constantly being shrunken. So like, it's, it's not that people don't know how bad this is. And I, it's not that I, I totally accept and understand people's like emotive reaction but yeah like the note of underlying glee that this was like coming to fruition as like the nightmare that it is i don't think that's i think people think that's politically productive but i don't think it is <laughs> sorry that was very no, I, meandering I, no I, that, I really appreciate that like i don't think it was meandering at all i hope we keep it um there's <laughs> they, they reminded me of that kind of framing too like well you're next right like we've seen mm-hmm. this a lot i think over the last few weeks of like next they're coming for if they're coming for trans people tonight, they're coming for you in the morning. And it's like, they're already coming for trans people. Right. And also next, like this idea that like, well, they came for women now and they're coming for the gays tomorrow. And it's like, guys, there are queer women who need abortions also. <laughs> like, like this idea that like, there's these discrete buckets of rights and like you have yours, and if you've lost yours, then the domino goes and the next and the next. It's like, these are actually already interconnected. They literally and literally like, internalized the poem that's like first they came yes. for and right. then they came for it. Yes. <laughs> but it's like a shopping list. Right. You know? Yeah, exactly. they think it implies a linear progression through the list. And it's like, no. That's right. If you're a socialist and Jewish, well, sorry you know like you got to choose one that you're losing your rights over and it's like and well I you're gonna have a three-day interregna you know like you're gonna have a three-day <laughs> intermediate cancels out. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it doesn't work that way like theoretically and you know this is an invitation for solidarity right like we're all at risk right now in different ways yes. and like it's not a contest mm-hmm. and I understand the need to freak out especially if you went to bed thursday night thinking roe was safe forever Mm-hmm. Um, but like, please process those emotions somewhere that isn't where people are trying to come together and do work right now. <laughs> yeah, like you need, a, you need a space yeah. to work that out. That's not in the moment of, you know, triage that we are in right now. 
No, that's such an absolutely good point, because I think part of that kind of catastrophizing then becomes a kind of currency, right? And it, it feeds into this narrative of like the magical political action that overnight transforms the situation, which as we cover all the time on the show, these kinds of narratives of like how change happens and how political uh, theory becomes law are incredibly oversimplified and kind of romanticized. And part of that romantic framework of, of like the law passes and everything is fine is this kind of like um, uh, tra- this like tragic position, right, of it being a kind of uh, fight against doom. And I think as a sort of rhetorical framework, that's not a super helpful framework because it it I don't think it inspires people to feel like they can do very tangible things about it. I mean, as Charlotte was saying, like there are a lot of things that have not changed at all as a result of this ruling in terms of how you can help people get access to care right now. If you care about this as an issue and you want to get involved, like those pathways still exist and like those things are there. But the kind of idea that the law itself shifting is that kind of romantic moment of like rupture in society is like part of the the problem with the whole framework itself, like with the entire, um, not just the sort of rhetoric, but the like system and the um, grounds on which we've been having this fight, which has really been a kind of like weird philosophical moral debate versus one that's more grounded in, in kind of this is an issue of like criminalization of policing and of uh, broad conservative agenda that also relates to like this kind of broader agenda of welfare reform and decentralization and defunding the welfare state. I gotta believe that the elements of the the Christian right, whether, you know, we're talking about kind of old school 80s religious right, Pat Robertson types, all the way to the Christo-fascists who have been mobilizing in the streets increasingly like I think they know in their heart of hearts that there just simply aren't enough cops to arrest everyone who's going to have an abortion. Right. That is not the reality that we're living Mm -hmm. in. There was this incredibly bizarre campaign ad for Biden and Harris um, that imagined a white mother and her white daughter being pulled over by cops crossing the border to another state to have an abortion. (laughs) Completely nuts. And like, it kind of gets to this thing that I think has also been really tense and contentious in this immediate aftermath, which is this idea of like, well, rich white women are going to be fine. Um, and, and, and it's sort of like put out there in this way of like trying to express um, an awareness of, you know, the way that racism is embedded in our criminal legal system, the way that policing is an arm of that, um, of instituting, you know, kind of a racial order. Yes, all of that is true. And it is completely true that the way that this criminalization is going to look is probably going to be about the surveillance of the behavior of women of color in emergency rooms and not mm-hmm. white moms driving their white mm-hmm. daughters over state lines. Though all bets are not like that could also happen. Right. Oh, yeah. I think like it's it's requiring holding a lot in your head right now. of Like, OK, we do actually know how policing works in this country, but also. Um, there is a risk right now that like we can also say it's shared, but unevenly distributed. Like we all have skin in this game, yes. but different people have different skin in this game. I think that's such a great way of putting it. And I don't know, I've been thinking along a lot of the same lines myself. And I think this question of surveillance in emergency rooms is one that and surveillance in medical settings in general is one that needs to be taken up much more seriously. So like Phil and I were talking about like, oh, the the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, like what are they going to do? And like my feeling is that, you know, most 
many doctors are narcs, right? Like narking is already kind of built into the <laughs> spectrum of like obstetric care. You know, like it's just uh, a very kind of like paternalistic, like patronizing environment. But, you know, I think would it be great if ACOG released some kind of statement? They, pr- they might have already done so. Like, sure, I think that would be uh, fine. I think massive kind of like non-cooperation and sabotage by like the medical establishment could be effective, but I think that's very unlikely to happen. But I think something that is maybe a political objective worth fighting for and perhaps a place to put some of this energy is, you know, talking about the ambiguity, the ambiguities both in the law and in, you know, kind of biology. (laughs) You know, as as has been talked about on this podcast a lot, there are many, many uh, medical situations where the treatment is an abortion. And I think that you know, if if the the medical community, you know, as a community of professionals, not just abortion providers, but, you know, medical providers in general, they really ought to issue some clarification on, you know, their guidelines or their process for the treatment of miscarriage, you know, ectopic pregnancy, things like that, because I think that, you know, the, the criminalization piece with with the ambiguity in in the laws and in the biology and this like fear that clinicians providers have of of being prosecuted um i think that a lot there's a lot of gray area there where a lot of um harm could be done and so i think you know for for whatever it's worth like instead of navel gazing and like daydreaming about doing a natural experiment which is like all academic twitter is doing <laughs> now on from now you know like right now instead of that i think a more productive use of resources from like the academic and medical communities is like okay well how do we get these professional associations to like issue some clarification on how you know how they're going to be handling these like ambiguous situations because you know it can be risky enough to walk into a medical encounter and i think you know, people deserve the clarification. And and to be clear, they haven't thus far. I, I've been checking. I, yeah. Yeah. I've been checking ACOG and, and AMA and those, the, the associations you'd expect to have some. And what they have is like, you know, this sort of thing that I don't know, I've sort of come to expect from, uh, you know, organizations like this when, when the chips are really down and when they're quote unquote, like ethics that give them uh, some moral, you know, some supposed moral authority as a profession come come into question they they issue you know the strongly worded press release and the question and and you can see it if you follow what you know providers are saying they're like i really wish that acog would say something uh yeah. that would give me some clarity and you know you and who knows maybe they will but but i think it's far more likely that the tools of the trade that the the guilds um and any number of other you know, you you talked earlier, Melissa, about about uh, the sort of the legal uh, community. It's like the the tools of the trade are pretty obviously not suited to the moment in terms of the the like organizational strategies. It's the 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 kind of movement against uh, abortion is strong enough and reliant enough on people's unwillingness to self police. Um, and fear of prosecution that like unless you do something very strong and there's a very strong signal, not just from, you know, prosecutors saying I won't enforce because is that really credible? I mean, they're, they're, they're going to be, you know, the courts are ultimately going to be 
you know, cajoled into enforcing these things by conservative legal funds, which is Mm -hmm. that's now what they're going to turn their attention to. So that's like even a statement about non-enforcement or clemency, while maybe valuable, it's not going to be enough. There has to be something more um, in terms of uh, a defense apparatus, but also in terms of a, a set of like guidelines are like what what is possible like so that people don't lose you know don't lose and and actually might even you know be forced to recognize like this thing that you know was so-called like a federal right really wasn't something as as you're saying like that that was meaningfully available to people Mm -hmm. um around the country and in lots of places i think that 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 question of like how much can we trust these pledges not to prosecute and how is the the right going to sort of adjust their strategy to, I don't know, I'm imagining like, what do you do with a federalist society that now goes after prosecutors? And the way that like we've seen sort of this backlash against the progressive prosecutor movement in the United mm-hmm. States, um, including backlash coming from, you know, tough on crime, quote unquote liberals. Um, like there is this like growing awareness now or more of an awareness that like prosecutors hold a lot of power and that's like a lever that you can pull towards your various political projects. Um, but even if like we had these non-prosecution agreements, that doesn't necessarily change the relationships that you were talking about between police and healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. And as Abby put it, like healthcare providers are cops, can be cops. It's embedded in the in the the power dynamics of of those settings. And I think like it maybe it's I don't know, like it's psychologically easier, I think, to kind of tell people like be careful what's on your phone, which you should be careful what's on your phone. Um but also like social workers need to like be training one another about their rights and responsibilities in this moment. And, you know, what it is to, to put the people that you're supposed to be protecting um, at the mercy of a law enforcement apparatus that has so much power right now. Um, And I know some of those conversations are happening between sort of the groups like if when how and others who are doing abortion criminalization, lawyering, trying to partner with social workers. I'm not sure the degree to which they're partnering with medical workers more broadly. Um, but yeah, I think it's sort of hard for people to be like, well, here's the power I have in my profession and what I can do with it. And it, and more, it's sort of like, well, how can I as an individual, like implement the right tips and tricks not to get arrested? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like Charlotte, actually, you, you sort of spoke to this really well in your piece, which was about the leaked opinion, but obviously it's like still relevant because nothing changed between the leaked opinion and what came out. Um, you said reading the opinion reminded me that the first liberation is freeing yourself from thinking as our self-appointed rulers think if what they do can be called thought. Their corrupt mechanisms must be abandoned completely. And you say also you can't refute a void. Yeah, I am. I'm I'm so I'm really glad that, Abby, that you you brought up sort of like not to put any words in your mouth, like the like sort of like the (laughs) fundamentally conservative nature of medicine as like an Mm -hmm. institution. Oh, yeah. You can put those words in my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to make you sound like a radical or anything. (laughs) Um, But um, at the risk of being like incredibly annoying, the the history of criminalization of abortion in the United States is that doctors spearheaded it like male doctors who were trying to turn, you know, healing into a profession were like, 
didn't want to, they were just like, women don't understand what they're doing when they want abortions. Like we understand because we're educated and um, they didn't want the competition from like midwives and folk healers. So, I mean, this is, this is very well established. Anyone who's interested can look it up and, you know, uh, <laughs> and make themselves even more furious about like the state of things. But um, I, I was looking recently, I don't know if any of you have, have, looked I don't know why you would but um you know there is like a and heavy quotes pro-life group of gynecologists and you know obstetricians and um there's they have um their stance on ectopic pregnancy is that what you do for an ectopic pregnancy is not an abortion it's a treatment and they have a whole statement saying this and like they're, they're saying like, it's not an abortion. No doctor would ever call it an abortion. It's not an abortion because that pregnancy isn't viable. It is a treatment for, you know, like a medical condition. Um, and uh, anti-abortion groups love that, right? They're very eager to point to that because they know that people will use ectopic pregnancy as an example for how pregnant people will die without abortion as a protected right. Of course. But <laughs> what they also do, what those, those anti-abortion groups also do is cite a doctor's, like basically like journal. It's his own writing from like <laughs> the early 1900s. Oh my God. He's like, I successfully replanted an ectopic pregnancy and it went great. <laughs> yeah, so, like it's a succulent. They, like it's they, a, honestly, yeah. they honestly cite this. They'll call it like evidence. And then they'll also be like modern, modern science, like modern medicine is such a miracle. Uh, like surely yeah. we're going to be able to do, you know, um, <laughs> we could do it um, then imagine what we can do now. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is exactly what this they're saying. Is, yeah. This is a central mythos, right? It's interesting that you bring this up Charlotte, because, you know, talking about like, yeah, the, the professionalization of medicine, like the medicalization of like reproduction, is kind of the roots of these things. And as, as you're noting with this story, the professionalization, the goal of the professionalization is not about like disseminating scientific knowledge or implementing, you know, sound practices or whatever, like the motivating force behind the professionalization, you know, the medicalization of reproduction, I think relates to a proprietary like a property interest in like the family because you know like Alito's opinion quoted this like you know 1600s like English jurist he was like a prosecutor during the witch trial you know he basically like expounded at the time I guess you know when when this regime of private property which you know by the way is like the overriding liberty in liberalism is like the liberty to enjoy your property um, so, you know, the 1600s, this like consolidation of this like property regime in England and like these proprietary relationships within the family. I really think there's like a lot of that going on. And I think that the kind of Christian right that like that's how they kind of understand what they're doing. And I think that kind of opens up the connections to, you know, other rights that are being threatened. It's not that you know, they're necessarily just like items on a menu, but the right to have a family where, you know, for example, a woman can make a decision about when to have kids or a family where a youth can decide to, you know, transition or a family that has, you know, two cis men spouses. These like families are not like admissible families in like the, in the Christian rights, like 
you know, kind of property understanding of the family and like their understanding and I think political objective of the family as like the the best and most important like unit of social organization. And I think, sorry, I'm, I'm like really galaxy braining off on a tangent, but just to like bring it back around, I really think that that like what you mentioned, Charlotte, and what you're talking about with, you know, the, the history of kind of like obstetrics and gynecology, the history of the, the criminalization of abortion, like it has these really, really deep roots. And then you see these news items and it's like, why is Alito citing a witch, a witch trial judge? And it's like, oh boy. Yeah. Like this, this stuff goes back. Um, really far. And I think the roots are are really deep and complex. Can I throw us in another 19th century thing? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, we need it. <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah. I mean, in terms of like talking about like kind of the ownership of the family and reproductive control and coercion, you know, one of the kind of grotesque things in the way that the court is pushing back or the majority of the court is pushing back on the legal right to abortion is they're saying like, this is you know, you can't make an argument that this is anywhere in the Constitution and the primary place in the Constitution. This argument has been made as the 14th Amendment um, and the right to equal protection mm-hmm. under the law. And like the reason we have a 14th Amendment is because this was, you know, our movement out of a period of illegal slavery. Mm-hmm. And one way to read that and, and scholars like Michelle Godwin and, and Dorothy Roberts have been you know, writing a lot about this recently. One way to read the 14th Amendment is because of the reproductive control and coercion that's that's fundamental to slavery and the control of when and how black women reproduce, um, when and how black girls are forced to reproduce, that the freedom that you find in the 13th and 14th amendments includes that. And so now we're entering this era of sort of reinstituting that kind of reproductive control and coercion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just very convenient to sort of say like, oh, no, 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 there's no basis in the constitution, even though this is like 100% why these amendments exist is is to restore liberty and part of that liberty is reproductive control so it it's it's been really yeah i feel like i've, I've had to give myself like a, a amateur 14th amendment history to sort of even understand this moment <laughs> but that feels just as fundamental to it as well well i also like i mean roe like the finding of roe first way like fucking sucked because everything mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like if you read the majority opinion by like uh-huh. justice blackman he basically, he's it, it, the, the whole, he basically is like two people in this situation have what rights. There are two rights that need to be balanced, sometimes competing rights that need to be balanced in our finding. And like, I'll give like listeners a chance to guess if they don't already know, like what rights those are, <laughs> the right of the physician and the right of the state. And like the pregnant person is basically like the object like Mm -hmm. that the state and the physician take an interest in. And there is, I think like one line that kind of says something about like women's right to abortion, but it is to reject it. And it's to say this court does not recognize a woman's absolute right to abortion. So like, I mean, Roe really did suck ass like hard, (laughs) 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 which is not to minimize like what, we're facing now in terms of criminalization or like the complete agony and like devastation that happened in abortion clinics in those trigger law states, like on Friday morning. But I just, I think that, I mean, B, you and I talked about this before some, which is like, I don't really dispute that, uh, that abortion is healthcare, but I also think there's a way in which like 
our concept of abortion should be divorced from the medical establishment in as much as like we have medication abortion now, which makes it so safe and could make it so accessible. And you really don't need a doctor's supervision, right? Like if you have an ectopic pregnancy and you take the you know, medication abortion, it's not going to work. But um, the, the idea of like doctors as gatekeepers will be like an incredible impediment to us getting people what they need. God, that's um, such a good point. And I think mm-hmm. that doctors, like w- when you, you know, when you were talking about the Abby, I'm just like, yeah, you know, I hadn't really articulated to the self, this to myself before, but I do think like doctors are going to be pushed. And I don't think many of them are going to push back. Like, I think a lot yeah. of doctors will be willing to abandon abortion. And, and the evidence I think of that is how profoundly siloed abortion already was like surgical mm-hmm. abortion um, mm-hmm. and how small the number of people who wanted to learn it and like demanded to learn it and the burden carried by the abortionists who were willing to travel, you know, around circulate through these like incredibly dangerous states to keep these clinics open. And there like aren't enough superlatives for those abortion providers to like Mm -hmm. recognize, you know, what they do. But thinking about abortion as healthcare, I guess, always seemed of limited utility to me because people can't get healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> so like, it's not like moving people to say like abortion's healthcare. It's like, yeah, it's too expensive for me to get. And I can't find like a good person to like help me with it. Yeah. Just talk to your doctor. <laughs> I was going to say like this whole kind of framework of like, well, the decision should be between a woman in quotes and her doctor, right? Oh, that that is God. sort of mm-hmm. like the the power the power structure here is held between these two people. And like, yeah, I mean, medication abortion is an opportunity to return that back to the person having the abortion. Um, there doesn't need to be like this, like overwrought decision between them and a medical provider. And like, that's the relationship that we're trying to protect. Like that's not a relationship. I think that you can sort of put rights on that in a way that makes sense for everybody. And most people, I think also, you know, again, as you're saying, if they don't have access to healthcare in the first place, then sort of like, well, which doctor? Who's my, you know, I'm thinking of all during COVID, all the uh, advice of like, oh, well, just reach out to your primary care provider. Who's that? (laughs) Well, I think this all though really underlines the one thing that I think is a really important lesson from this entire moment for me, which is I think that this is a really great uh, moment for us to all really point and say like, look, this sort of institutional liberalism, this sort of like Mm -hmm. West Wing fantasy that you've been peddling for like decades at this point has really, it's entirely a dead end. There's absolutely no truth to it. It's it's entirely a fantasy. And you, if you just think of people have been bringing up, for instance, not just the failure of like in this Congress uh, for them to do anything about abortion, um, but also, of course, the failure of the Obama administration. And when they had, you know, when they had control of the House and Senate and the presidency at the same time, uh, how in like 2009, they didn't do anything about abortion as well. And it just all if you if you think about this, and um, maybe this is just because I'm thinking specifically of like the relationship this we're talking about the relationship of abortion to healthcare. Um, and how, again, you know, I think the, the point is really important. Like it's of limited, it's that argument is by necessity of limited utility mm-hmm. because healthcare is not something that people can fucking get in this country because healthcare is something that is entirely tied to your like productive worker value, like your wage value or something and your capacity to like buy the healthcare that you can afford. This, I think is such a important moment to demonstrate not only again, the connection between all these things that we've been talking about, but how there are so many ways that you could 
push against this. One of them obviously is doing something like federally codifying Roe. Another one is if instead of doing the fucking Obamacare nightmare, if they had done Medicare for all or something in 2009 Mm -hmm. and made abortion like free abortion, no questions asked, like on demand, a component of that at a federal level. I mean, there have been moments in this country we talk about, for instance, as a reference point in like the 1960s, the desegregation of hospitals was brought about because of Medicare as a federal program requiring it. Mm -hmm. Right. You could do a similar push. I mean, we could kickstart that now if they wanted to, while they still have control of the House and Senate before they fucking lose it in November. But like, their response is essentially to do the like, oh, well, you know, make sure you vote Mm -hmm. thing. Well, and I will also point out the Biden administration attempted to give authority to pharmacists in order for them to prescribe Paxlovid directly. And this was a whole campaign that the AMA organized against because they didn't want Mm -hmm. physician authorities stepped on. So this is something, this is a kind of like the kind of demedicalization pathway that we're talking about is not like some crazy rejection of like pharmaceuticals or conspiracy theory. It's like, no, we're talking about something like, what if you made a test to treat program for abortion? What if you could walk into a pharmacy and get a free pregnancy test and get an abortion the very same day. Like, and you could do this without a doctor being involved and with, with a pharmacist prescribing the whole thing, right? And you still are like, that's an existing regulatory pathway that like people tried to use this year that we're working on in the Biden administration that you could like <laughs> then map Which is onto not a abortion. Test to treat because right. no one should have to right. deal with and this CVS. Is a, but- this is a program we're critical of, right? This is what I'm saying, right? Like, but but this is how little they're doing. Yeah. Well, and their response is, I don't know if it has struck anyone else how quickly. <laughs> The Dems response has become, okay. well, you know, obviously, you know, we're upset. You know, we we feel your pain. We're upset, too. We hear you, blah, blah, blah. And like we, you know, we will do everything in our power to support those to support those, quote unquote, women who, you know, choose to travel out of state to obtain an abortion. And it's like, fuck you. Like, seriously, (laughs) fuck you. Like, it's it's astounding that that's like the level of like rhetorical pushback that is coming from like the democratic party, which like holds both houses of Congress and the president, you know, like, I don't, I don't care about the Democrats. Like the Democrats suck on abortion, whatever. They're probably always going to suck, but just like the completely, yeah. Like you said already, just like dead end. It's worth dead end response. Like, and it's also sort of like worth thinking about like how much, like just how asleep at the wheel that response is. Because like <laughs> if you pick up any major periodical in an airport that you might be flying into or out of, even like several weeks ago or when the leak decision happened, it's like, okay, people are already beginning to talk about extraterritorial prosecution. Mm-hmm. You would have seen like just the, it is the the easiest thing to have seen just how inadequate that is. But I, I think that's the sort of condition in which this decision kind of finds itself. I mean, it's it's kind of no mistake that uh, the the way that, you know, Alito sort of puts that decision, like returning returning this decision to the political process is not just the fact that like Republicans control most state governments. It's also the fact that the political alliances and coalitions have been, I think, I really think rent apart by the kind of philosophy of interest group liberalism and rights, which kind of treats all of these things as narrow islands of policy or islands of kind of action rather than get, you know, 
conceptualizing them as really part of a larger regime um, that is seeking to exert its will on, um, you know, working class people. Like, it's just like the, you know, if anything to think about, it's not just the, the fact that this like approach to government via these like liberal rights was a problem kind of from the beginning and something to be dispensed with. It's also the fact that that strategy and the kind of organization of a movement through very sort of isolated um, nonprofits doing their own thing, you know, trying to hit their targets for like annual reports and so on. Like that too is really not, if you think about it, like really hasn't kind of resulted in any kind of uh, assurances or insulation for people who are actually going to be facing the brunt of the consequences of this decision. And that, that atomization of, of rights are sort of like these like discrete islands um, you know, where everybody's sort of working in isolation on their particular, this is my right, don't take my right, or on behalf of others, because I feel like so rarely is that work like by and for, it's often like, well, let me go help the poor people over there who might lose their right. Mm-hmm. Um, it That came from somewhere. I mean, like there is like within liberalism, I think like fertile ground for that to sort of take root and be like, oh yes, this is how we protect rights and democracy. Mm-hmm. But the idea even that abortion is this isolated thing like Charlotte was saying, the way it's been isolated within the medical profession, um, the way it's been isolated from the political debate, like the way it continues to be framed, even in this moment of like, oh, this is very divisive. This is one of the most, um, you know, difficult mm-hmm. issues for people to grapple with. It's like, abortion is actually broadly popular. Legal abortion is broadly popular. This isn't the moment that we're in. The moment that we're in is the right has successfully isolated abortion Mm-hmm. from everything else and made it a divisive issue. I think you can see that even more clearly when you see what they're doing around trans healthcare right now yeah. um, mm-hmm. with liberals happily picking up that line. Oh, this is very divisive. This is very controversial. There's no, you know, even there, the layer on like, there's no science around this, which like, <laughs> you know, putting that totally. aside um, it's, this is how this, like this atomization happens and it's very powerful once it takes root. And I, I don't know, like, I don't, I don't think that there's anything in particular that's going to happen in terms of changing the makeup of the court um, of passing. Like, I think we're more likely to have a federal ban on abortion before we're, you know, likely to have anything like a federal codification of of what was Roe. Um, So if that's the reality we're moving in, then like, at least we can sort of reclaim this domain of politics. It's like, no, we will not be separated from one another. No, this is not controversial. This is actually something that, is meaningful in people's lives and to turn people's lives and needs into a debate is just something we're not going to do. And like, I can have my own personal feelings about this. Like, I feel like this is the kind of politics I learned around sex work. Like, I don't really care how people feel about sex work, but I do want them to understand that criminalizing sex work endangers sex workers. And that Mm. is such like a, a powerful frame that I feel like I never really recognized around abortion. Like you can have whatever personal feelings you have about it, but like, what is the purpose of the law? Right. In regulating those feelings or instituting those feelings or forcing them on others. Like it, I, yeah, I feel like we've seeded so much ground. It's like almost hard mm-hmm. to see how much ground has been seeded. Well, it's, yeah, I was just reading this uh, article that was published a few months ago on, uh, Co- by Commonwealth Fund, the sort of like, you know, like middle of the road philanthropy. And it's like the paradox, like states that have the strictest uh, abortion, res- you know, regulations also have like really bad, uh, mortality outcomes. Right. It's like that is not a paradox, <laughs> not a paradox. Like, I don't care if it's just like the person was bad at writing headlines. It's like, that is definitionally not a paradox. That word shouldn't <laughs> enter into it and reveals how little you like understand about the way that the assault on 
the you know the ability of people to like have some control over their own health uh has worked and and just how linked all of these battles in a way have to be going forward that's like the point is not to like for me to like draw a particular bead of blame because there's hell of a lot of like blame to go around on all of our asleep at the fucking wheel uh elites who run everything um but the the point is to say like unless these things are linked there will be no good politics around it unless there's some coalitional energy that that comes from it like there you know you can't do any of the you know major kind of transformational things that are going to need to happen i think like what melissa was saying about you know like i i really cling to this that people do support legal abortion and I don't do it because I think like the majority will is what we should go with. Like I, right. it, didn't, it wouldn't matter to me if 98% of Americans were like abortion should be criminalized. But to me, it does seem like a source of hope. And uh, from my, my understanding is that like for many, many years, it, the polling around abortion, like if anyone has ever bothered to try to make it a little more nuanced, probably true of most polling, right? Like when you ask people, what do you mean when you say you're pro-life? They don't mean that they want people who've had abortions to be in jail. And they don't necessarily mean that they want any abortions to be illegal. It's more like they're uncomfortable with the idea of abortion. They don't really understand it. Or, you know, there are obviously these like true zealots who are also like true fascists. Like they don't care if the quote unquote baby actually lives or dies. They don't care if the quote unquote mother actually lives or dies. Like they want their, their power is what's important to them and like purifying violence. And, but I think most people, even people who think like, Oh, I, you know, first trimester abortions. Okay. Like in the second trimester, I don't know if people should be allowed to do that or not. I really feel like, and it's not because I think I'm so special, but I'm like, give me five minutes with this person and I just, not to be like a Pollyanna, like I actually think most people are decent people and that there is a, just an outrageous amount of ignorance around abortion because Democrats have completely forfeited any interest in like correcting or educating because they've just accepted the idea of like, well, it's just like, it's fundamentally controversial, which seems like the starting point for all sorts of like books about abortion, you know, they just accept mm-hmm. it's like, oh, this is polarizing. There's no way it'll ever not be polarizing. Like this just like, tr- like tremendous good faith extended to the people who call themselves pro-life when it's so, and it, when it has been so obvious for decades, like if you have, if abortion makes you uncomfortable and there you therefore want to reduce the number of abortions, here are the 50 things you would be working to do to put people in positions where they are less likely to need an abortion. And none of them is criminalizing abortion. None of them is trying to remove access to it, but they're not interested in it. So to me, I'm just like, I, you know, even like people who say they're pro-life, the wall street journal released that poll that was saying like people who, you know, described themselves as pro-life were still in freight. They were overwhelmingly in favor of birth control. They were overwhelmingly in favor of free birth control. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think there is like so much opportunity to push people left on this. And I feel like I have been pushed left. You know what I mean? Like I was, I was kind of like 
pro, like pro-abortion when I was younger. And like the older I've gotten, the more I've learned, the more I've seen, the more I've, you know, and the more I feel like I understand the phenomenon of abortion. And like, I actually, I find it incredibly encouraging to think that the majority of people around me when I go outside or when I'm just like sitting at home, they don't want abortion to be criminalized. They don't like, you know, if you're just on social media and you're looking at like these sadistic men's rights activists who are so clearly like (laughs) loving the idea of a woman dying in childbirth, you know, like that you can lose sight of that. But, and so to me, I think it's so important to remember. I think that's so true. And I think it gives me a little bit of hope too, because I think in the past, like certainly for, you know, the duration of my life, there's been a lot, like a lot has kind of gotten swept under the, you know, like there are all, there are these people that maybe have these, you know, middle of the road, you know, some pro-life views or aren't really sure what they think who affiliate with like the pro, you know, the pro-life slogan or, or camp or whatever, because of the illusion that abortion, like criminalization of abortion is somehow separable from kind of the larger right wing, like power project. Um, and that by, you know, holding these views about abortion or, or, you know, ascribing to this, to this camp, you know, you're, you're not necessarily like, like a right wing, you know, like whatever. I think now like the veil has kind of been pulled off and I think there's tremendous opportunity for, yeah, like you said, people to be, to be pushed left on this and to realize like, oh no, like I thought that abortion related to my, you know, status, like my rights, whatever in one way, but it's actually, (laughs) it's actually another way. I'm going to put my negative spin on it, but it's not like a negative, oh no, the world is doomed. It's negative. It's a kind of like protect yourself with this negativity, negative. Don't let people lie to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's yes. gonna be a lot of people right now saying like, oh, well, we didn't intend for women to, to be criminalized and go to jail. We and didn't like, want you to go I to think, jail. Yeah. And I think some people like Charlotte, to her point, really do believe that and, and have really been sold a lie. And there are ways that you can kind of pull people off the ledge of that lie. Um, but it's really, really hard. Like, I think the reason that that lie is so powerful is because the people who are experts and have the truth on this are people who are broadly not believed. We're talking about women. We're talking about people who are criminalized being <laughs> yep. majority people of color. Like right. there's a lot of like white dude law Twitter stuff that I've seen go down over oh, the last God, few days, yeah. which is just operating in this universe where like I showed up today and like, let me tell you how we should redesign Um <laughs> law around reproduction and sexuality in this country. (laughs) I have an idea for you. And like, ignore those people. Um, But the people who are like having a moment of doubt right now, oh no, that's not what I meant. I didn't mean that that's what was going to happen if I had a miscarriage. I didn't know that that's what was going to happen. Like, I think that's like a wedge space to strategically open up right now. Um, And what that looks like in my own work is, you know, I think unfortunately going to be tracking these cases of who is criminalized and what that looks like. And, you know, what was the the means by which they were criminalized and and putting a spotlight on all of the people who have a responsibility for that. Like, it's not just like the abstract law is going to be applied universally to all people who have abortions. It's going to be about small individual decisions. You know, I I'm an admitting nurse and I feel uncomfortable around this couple and I think that they're doing something bad. And so I'm going to call the police and like finding those people who are in those positions to make those decisions and find a way to reach them um, makes so much more sense to me when it comes to like the far kind of Christian nationalist, Christo fascist 
element, like community self-defense is really the only reasonable response to them. There's Mm -hmm. no room to argue with those folks. No reason to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't, I don't really advocate arguing with anyone online. It's more like like when I say conversation, like I very much mean kind of like a face-to-face conversation. Um, because the, another thing that I find kind of useful to keep in mind is, is how many people who are really actively agitating either like their legislators or their clinic protesters, or they're just donating to these, you know, like anti-abortion groups, a remarkable number of them have used abortion. They've had an abortion themselves, or they have helped someone have an abortion and the psychology like a lot of human psychology is like incredibly disappointing where they're able to say, well, I, I needed my abortion and I'm a good person. And like, it kind of doesn't count. And all these other people are the ones who are like being irresponsible or they're like Mm -hmm. killing a baby or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So part of the reason why I think I'm like, so against arguing online is I'm like, you just can't take things. Most of these people say on face value. Right. And I, th- I think these are all really important sort of takeaways and like part of honestly uh, the sort of way that stigma as a sort of social force interacts with abortion and has like historically um, been used to justify criminalizing anything. Right. Like stigma itself is a kind of way that it's a it's a sticky concept and it and it takes a lot of work and like direct addressing and information to try and undo some of these frameworks that just are completely um as we're saying like kind of just lies right as most of us saying about like the idea that abortion is like and will always be this contentious issue when there's actually in truth, this kind of broad mischaracterization of like where the kind of interests lie and like where the priorities lie that does not reflect like the actual sort of reality. And I think trying to embrace that is actually, you know, it, 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 from one perspective, you could say it feels like, oh, you're up against a huge foe. From another perspective, it's like, well, it's, actually just a tool to to see easier through all of the lies and be able to feel like, you know, I live in a sort of community in a society that like does support this this access to healthcare that I think is a right, right? But there is a sort of obstacle and I need to like organize with the people of my life to think through this. And this is, you know, in 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 one sense it's like a very depressing moment and people are very um feeling very down about it but i appreciate what the three of you have brought today because i feel like as realistic as our conversation has been it's like all been hopeful to me these are all things that i think are important facets of the conversation that we really appreciate you the three of you coming on today to be able to share that with the listeners and coming on the show yeah yeah i I very much appreciated the resistance to both the despair that seems to haunt uh, so much of the imaginary of the moment, but also the resistance to the sort of liberal fantasias of, of what could be done and pointing instead to actually what people have already been working on and the sort of infrastructure that exists for, for extending that I think has been as a really, you know, important way of, of, of kind of cluing into, to what a broader political transformation might sort of look like. Well, thank you for having us all. Yeah. Didn't think of anywhere else to, be hanging out and talking about this non-despairing moment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, appreciate the three of you so much. Um, And I think we'll wrap it here. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. 
And if you want to help us out a little more, you can share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Thank <laughs> you.